0: Dear friends, what if Jesus Jesus really meant the things that he said? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it Are few. What if Jesus really meant that? What if very few people really will find the way that leads to eternal life? What if the path to salvation really is hard? What if there really will be many people who do many mighty works And call on Jesus as Lord many people who attend church many people who lead Sunday school many people who are deacons many people who are pastors many people like many of us sitting in this room what if there are many people who call Jesus as Lord and they cruise through this life assuming that all is well anticipating that they will be greeted at those gates with a warm well done good and faithful servant but instead the one whom they claim to love the one in whose names they have offered all of their prayers the one that they have spent decades teaching and preaching about instead he looks them dead in the eye and says I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness What if Jesus meant these words and there are going to be people that are shocked to find themselves excluded from the kingdom of heaven and thrust into outer darkness. Dear children, if Jesus really meant what he said, if many really means many, if few really means few, if the gate that leads to life really is narrow, if the path of salvation truly is marked with affliction, If there really will be many that will miss this gate having no clue until it's too late, if Jesus really meant the things that he said, then this morning's text demands our utmost attention and ought to strike great fear into many of our hearts. If you've been walking with us throughout these last few months, you are well aware that this concluding portion of the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel, it really is fundamental. It's critical for understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how we're meant to respond to that. By the revealing work of God, these 12 ordinary men had been brought to believe in who Jesus was. God had been working through these miracles, through these healings, through the teaching, all to provide evidence as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Bringing these men along, that they would come to confess that which The angels in the heavens, the stars in the sky, the shepherds in the field, all seemed to know from the moment of his birth. There were thousands of others that had seen these same works, thousands of others that had heard these same public teachings, but they wouldn't believe because their hearts were hardened. It was only the few, only those chosen and called by God to have their hearts softened and their eyes opened that would come to this understanding of who Jesus was. And it was Peter, as the leader of the 12, that would make this confession. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirmed it. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the son of man. And to me come all power and authority and dominion and a kingdom without end. But you're not going to like what I have to say next because the Christ must suffer many things the christ must be rejected the christ must die and be raised again peter couldn't believe the things that he was hearing this is not the way that you build a kingdom suffering rejection death this was never part of the plan at least as best peter and the boys could understand it that's the reason that this word must is so very important as Peter would later preach in Acts 2, and as the disciples would later pray in Acts 4. This thing that Jesus was headed towards there in Jerusalem, this suffering, this rejection, this murder, these were all part of God's foreknowledge. This was all part of his preordained plan. Oh, make no mistake, it was evil. The murder, the persecution, the rejection of God's own son, there's never been a more evil act in all the earth. And these men, they committed this violence willfully. This sprang forth from hearts of selfish pride, hearts of self righteousness, hearts which would look upon the Son of God and judge him and find him lacking. Every single one of these men, they did these things willfully, and they would all answer to God. They would stand before him on the day of judgment, and there will be none without excuse, and yet this was all according to God's good and sovereign and perfect plan none of this was outside of his control and this is critical this is truly critical because you see Jesus wasn't merely peeking down the corridor of time he wasn't looking into a crystal ball he was revealing he was unveiling before his people his father's good and perfect plan from the beginning of time please see this God was not forced to react he was not forced to play some crummy hand that he had been dealt. He had been moving the entire universe since the beginning of time, since this point, that his son would go to Jerusalem. There he would be rejected, beaten, spit upon, mocked, abandoned, and die, but that he would raise again. You've got to see this because it's only there that you can cry out with Paul and say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us All things this was God's plan this was the way that he would crush the head of the serpent as he had promised Adam this was the way that he would bless the whole world as he had promised Abraham this is the way that the law would be fulfilled and that he may bestow his people with life and blessings as he promised Moses this is the way that he would usher in his eternal kingdom through his eternal king as he promised David this was God's plan for redemption from all time and to argue against it was to put yourself on the side of the enemy that is called Satan to resist it is to resist God himself. And so Jesus made clear there is only one proper response. If you wish to align yourself and your life with this plan that God has now revealed, you must keep your eyes fixed on the things of God, and you must reject the way and the wisdom of men. Please stand to your feet, please. We continue reading the 8th chapter of Mark's gospel. We're going to read from verse 34 all the way to 9-1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And all God's people said, "Amen." you may be seated. Father, God, it is a terrifying thing to handle your word. We're a sinful people living in a sinful world, and there is no hope that we could rightly hear and see and understand the words that you have spoken apart from your work. So we plead with you now. Help us to understand. Help us to believe Help us to obey for it's in your son's precious name we pray amen so i cannot sufficiently express to you how important this morning's text has been in my life as you have heard me say for many time many times from this pulpit i don't know exactly when i was saved by the time i was born i had spent nine months going to church i was baptized sometime around the age of 12 or 13 i don't really know I had been teaching Sunday school and sometimes even filling this pulpit for years before I had any real basis for assurance that eternal life was mine, any real evidence that God had in fact caused me to be born again. And while I knew the words of the gospel, while I had shared them often, while I would watched as God had used texts like John 3.16, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9, Ephesians 2.8 to call other men to life, it was Jesus' words in this morning's tax that I believe God used to penetrate my heart and heart these were the words he used to call me and show me what it meant to truly follow after Jesus Christ I cannot overstate to you how important Jesus teaching here has been to my life so it began like this and he called the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me who is Jesus speaking to here Look back at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them. This is the crowd. These are not the believers. These are not the true disciples. These are not those that have been brought to saving faith. These are the people that were hanging around, perhaps looking for a meal, some healing, some entertainment, maybe hoping that they could mold Jesus into their image of an earthly king. These were the people that Jesus had been pulling away from. And now he's pulled away and he's in Caesarea Philippi. As far north as you can go within the traditional bounds of Israel as far away from Jerusalem as you can get he's gone there with the disciples with the true followers with those that have been brought to faith with those that have confessed Jesus as Christ and Lord and now he's bringing the two groups together because the scripture says he said to them that is to the crowd and to the disciples they're both hearing the same teaching this is one singular message if you wish to follow after me, if you wish to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This wasn't for the elite, super Christians. This wasn't just for those who had been called to be disciples, I mean, to, to called to be apostles or church leaders. This was for everyone, for the outsiders, for the insiders, for the lost, for the saved, for anyone and everyone. If you wish to begin following me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. If you wish to continue following me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. This isn't an optional second step for the mature believer. This is the necessary response to the gospel. Jesus has been preaching this message. The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent, believe, and be saved. He's now showing them what repentant faith looks like. There is simply no other path that leads to where Jesus is going. This is the first step of obedience and the second and the third and a million that come after that. So he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, early in life, I believed that this self-denial, that it was the equivalent of self-control. That the path to being a Christian, that what it meant to be a Christian, was I had to withhold from myself all the good things of this life. That If I really wanted to be a good little Christian boy, that I had to give up sweets, I had to stop drinking caffeine, I had to wake up early and forego sleep, And while self-control will absolutely be present in the life of a believer, it is one of the fruit of the Spirit after all. I've got to believe that what Jesus is talking about here is something much deeper. Surely this self-denial is one of the defining evidence of true repentant faith. It's one of those things which separates those which are truly following Jesus from those that are not. Surely it means something more than just not eating a donut and waking up at four in the morning to pray. As important and good as those things may be. So if we look at the word deny here, it's the same word that Jesus used at the Last Supper when he talked to Peter and he told him, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. It's the word erneomai. It means to repudiate, to disown, to refuse to be associated with someone. There was a little girl there. She recognized Peter as one of the Galileans that had been with Jesus, but Peter began to curse and he swore, I do not know that man. Peter wanted no part of what came from being connected to Jesus Christ. This is the picture of denial. This isn't self-harm. It isn't self-hatred. It isn't asceticism. It isn't even the renunciation of certain sins in our lives. It is to completely denounce self as the dominant and determining element in your life. It is to reject self as Lord of your life. It is to refuse to bow and worship and to focus your attentions on the God of self is to hear the cry of your flesh, is to hear the God of self demanding your affections, demanding your attention, demanding your allegiance, demanding your obedience, and then responding as if your eternal life depends on it. I do not know that man. I want nothing to do with him. Distancing yourself, disassociating yourself, denouncing the God of self. That's what it means. And Jesus shows us then why it's so critical, because we Self, the flesh, the God that is us, we will not like what comes next. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, in common, everyday American usage, this idea of bearing a cross, it's really not that big a deal. Everyone has a cross to bear. How many times have you heard that saying? In today's language, it means little more than, it can mean little more than just a minor discomfort. It's any trial, any temptation, any burden in this world. So please hear me well. Your nagging wife is not your cross to bear. Your cancer diagnosis and the treatments which follow, that is not the cross that Jesus is calling you to take up right here. We've got to read this in context. Remember, we've just been told Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but that the Christ is going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed, and he's going to raise again. And then immediately he introduces this thought of the the cross. So there would have been zero doubt in the minds of those that were standing around him exactly what Jesus was referring to. In first century Palestine, or anywhere in the Roman world for that matter, if a man was seen walking down the road carrying a cross, you immediately knew what was happening. This wasn't a mild inconvenience this wasn't moderate discomfort this wasn't some light burden this wasn't the generic suffering of this world this was a sign of official death this was a man that had found himself on the wrong side of the powers and the authorities of that world he had been tried he had been found guilty he had been condemned and now he was headed to die a most gruesome death at the time of this writing at the time that Jesus was speaking Crucifixion was reserved for the most vile and hated of criminals. Roman citizens would not be crucified. You see, if you found yourself in the good graces of the kingdom, you found yourself as a citizen of the power of that day, you were safe from the cross. It was only slaves, political opponents, agitators, those with no civil rights. Those were the ones that were sentenced to die on a cross. After being convicted, they would be stripped and beaten, then they would be given a crossbeam to carry, oftentimes several miles along a public road. Where there, they would be nailed to the cross. They would be hung high to suffer within the sight of all that passed by. The body would often be left up there for days to rot as a warning against anyone else that would choose to oppose the powers of that world. It was a warning for others. If you rebel, this is what awaits you. So for the first century Jewish man, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he talked about carrying his cross. They knew it all too well. You see, for first century Christians living on this side of the first Easter, we see the cross and we are immediately brought to think about God's loving mercy there, about how he was able to find himself both just and gracious and what was accomplished there at the cross of Christ. And so we celebrate the cross. We embrace the cross. The cross has become a fashion symbol. But for the disciples and for the crowd that were standing there with Jesus on that day, this was a picture of nothing less than torture and death and shame. Cursed is the man who hangs upon a tree. The cross was not to them a thing to be celebrated. Men took up the cross for one reason and one reason only. They were headed to die. They could not continue in this old life that they once thought they had. No matter how marvelous or how crummy it was. That was the point. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to be hated and rejected by those in positions of power, and I'm going to suffer greatly. I'm going to be spit upon and beaten and mocked and scorned and accused of many things, and then I'm going to carry my cross to a place called Golgotha where there I will be killed. If you want to come after me, this is the way you must go. If you want to come after me, you must be willing to do the same. And the God of self, he will abhor this. The God of self, the God of flesh, the you that is Lord of your life today, you'll reject this at all costs. Suffering, death, rejection. The God of you will not accept this. A natural person cannot accept these things, but it is the only way that you can follow after me because a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if you're going to come after me, I lead and you follow, not the other way around. You must come down this path that I am headed. I call all the shots. This means that you must deny yourself. No longer can you live in constant thought and adoration of yourself. No longer can you live giving in and obeying the desires of your flesh. You must renounce all claims that you had to this life. Do this and you can follow me. It's the only way. That's the message that Jesus was giving. And we must remember that for the original audience, for those that were standing there with Jesus, for the ones that Mark was writing to, Gentile believers living in the middle of the first century under an evil emperor called Nero. A man by whom many had been flayed alive, burned alive, fed to beasts, and crucified. We know in addition to that, that all the apostles, except with the likely exception of John, they met gruesome deaths, killed for the name of Jesus Christ. And so for these men, this call to die was quite literal. This wasn't hyperbole. This wasn't exaggeration. This was literally a call to give of your physical life to suffer and to die the same in many places all around this world. Places where to publicly confess Jesus as Lord, to take believer's baptism, is almost a sure path to a martyr's death. But what about us? What about us living in 21st century Crosby, Texas, where we know very little of real persecution, where we certainly know very little of being dragged out of this place, tried, beaten, suffering greatly, and then being killed physically? I will tell you that one day, that time will come I don't know whether it's going to come in my lifetime I don't know if it's gonna come in the lifetime of my children or your children but I do know that someday perhaps in the last day of the last days it will come when we will be met with real physical tangible persecution and so you must determine today before you presume to follow after Jesus Christ you must count the cost today are you willing to die his death are you willing to follow him and die a, a a suffering Rejection-filled death at the hands of the powers of this world. Are you prepared to suffer and die, or will you fall away? Because as Jesus has said, you will, be hated for, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will you endure this hatred, or will you fall away? But we've got to remember something here. Jesus isn't just calling these men, and he isn't just calling us to some one-time event off in the future. This call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, this is the beginning of the Christian walk, not the end. And yet at the same time, it's not a one-time thing at the beginning. And that's where I think that Luke's record of this really does me well. That's the passage that I grew up memorizing was Luke 9, 23, because it's there that we read that Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a daily dying. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. Time after time after time I must die. Don't you see? This is more than just a picture of physical death. This is an ongoing thing. Although physical death is the ultimate picture. And you must every day wake up with the willingness to lay down your life physically if that's what is needed, if that's what you are called upon to do for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel. If that's what he calls you to do, you must leave your house every day saying, I am ready to do this. I stand before you every time someone joins the church. I stand here every time we bring a baby before you and say, you must be willing to lay down your life. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I'm saying if the time comes, you must be willing to die But perhaps even tougher than that, there must be a daily dying to self, to renouncing your claim to anything in this life, any of the good things that this world has to offer, ongoing, day after day, not some single act of grand obedience, daily, I must die. This isn't a man standing over you with a gun, saying, renounce the name of Jesus Christ or I will shoot you. Again, this is something perhaps even tougher than that. This is dying to things which in and of themselves aren't bad. They may well be good, and yet day after day, you come to this place and you die. That's what makes it tough because every single morning you wake up and the God of self is right there to greet you again. Good morning. I'm here to be Lord of your life again. Day after day after day, this God of self, you cannot kill it once and then be done daily, hourly, sometimes by the minute as our old self pops up. As our old God pops up, demanding control, demanding that we do everything we do to avoid suffering, everything that we can to avoid rejection, everything we can to avoid the cross daily. We must cry out, I don't know this man. I want no part of being associated with him. And it's then that we can join with Paul in his words, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. But Jesus Christ now lives in me. This isn't a death and then you're dead. It's a living as a new person in Christ Jesus. It's all that he won there at the cross being attributed to you that you may now walk in a new life with him. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But this is not something that you can do in your natural state. God must enable this. He must bring you to this point. By the working of his spirit and your union with Jesus Christ, that you must hand yourself over daily, consistently, completely, handing over the idol that is you, handing it over to God to be put to death. If you try to do this in your own power, you will fail. On that night, Peter cried out, he said, Lord, I will go with you to both prison and to death. And less than 12 hours later, he was saying he never even heard of him. Quit making pronouncements in a safe room about what you're going to do for Jesus Christ. Hand yourself over completely to him. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came and filled Peter that he then stood proudly, boldly before the crowd, preaching Jesus as the Christ and them as his murderers, giving no thought, having no concern for what that meant for his physical life, for his earthly life. And then God would use him. This very same Jesus that he renounced would then speak through him to the persecuted church in his first epistle as he would call these men to endure in the same suffering, the same suffering that he himself now accepted, now embraced. He's now calling them to endure, exhorting them, assuring them that the suffering of this lifetime, that those that suffer for Christ and his gospel, that those that suffer with Christ. Christ, that this is not evidence that God has abandoned you. It's an assurance that you're following after Jesus. He's telling them. These are breadcrumbs. These are markers along the way. This is assurance that you're following after Jesus, the suffering that you're, that you're receiving now in his name. Again, this isn't ordinary suffering. All the world suffers. Nobody gets out of this without suffering. No one gets out of here without dying. The question is, are you suffering for the name of Christ? Are you suffering with him? And I cannot stress this enough. This isn't some grand, over-the-top, one-time act of super obedience. This is steady, long-suffering, day after day after day. Jesus doesn't want to hear about your willingness to die for him on the last day. He doesn't need you to stand in this place to stand up and say, if everybody else in here abandons you, Jesus, I won't. When the persecution comes to Crosby, Texas, when they come marching in with the guns, When the beast shows himself, whatever that looks like, I'm going to suffer with you, Jesus Christ. I'm going to die with you in that last day. This is all empty talk if you're not dying today, if you're not laying down your life today, if you're not taking up your cross and following him today. Don't you see? Men swear, just like Peter. Jesus, if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. And he says, you were never with me in the first place. You've never once denied yourself. You've never once suffered on account of my name. You've certainly never died to self. Oh, you've told other people about me. You've proclaimed yourself to be my follower. But the reality is I was nothing more than an add-on to your old life. You talk about trust, turning from sin. You talk about repentance. You talk about belief. I don't think you know what those words mean. And so I'm showing you here. You'll never fall away from following me. What made you think you were following me in the first place? What about your life resembles mine? Tell me when you've been rejected because you've spoken my difficult truth. You haven't because of the fear of rejection. Tell me when you suffered because of my namesake. You suffer because you're an idiot and you do stupid things. Show me a place where you've ever gone without because you've given and you've served and you've gone for the sake of my gospel. You haven't. Quit talking about your willingness to die in the end and die today. But, beloved, that's the beauty of this message. You just start today. You don't have to wait. You don't have to build up the courage. You look to him and his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, and you say, today, God, give me the ability to deny myself and to die to myself, to completely hand everything that I am, to disassociate myself with this old life and march forward in who Jesus Christ is. That's the offer that he's extending right here. I don't say these things to hurt your feelings. I don't say these things to embarrass you. I say these things to wake you up. I thought I was walking with the Lord for 20 years, and I completely missed the mark. He was just my tag-along little buddy. He was just a guy I slapped onto the end of my empty prayers. He's saying, "Today you die to yourself. Today." And every day that comes after, you take up your cross. Daily, you die. I I pray that God gives you ears to hear. I pray that you have eyes to see. I pray that he softens your heart to see this truth, that there is simply no other way to eternal life. We don't get to circumvent this. We don't get to point back to something we did in the past and say, okay, God, I'll just catch you in heaven. We'll get to grasp onto the good things of this life while the God of self dominates and believe that somehow the gates of heaven will be flung wide on that day. He says that the path is narrow. He says that the way is hard. If you have not taken this narrow path, and if you do not find yourself walking down this way that is hard, where can you find assurance? Praise God that he doesn't just leave us with the command. God is perfectly within his rights to look at us and says, because I'm God and you're not, that's why I said so. He's perfectly within his rights to demand unquestioned obedience with no promise, with no assurance, with no explanation whatsoever. But praise God that Jesus doesn't leave us there. He goes on to explain why it is that this denying self, that this carrying your cross is more than worth it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my name's sake and the gospel will save it. So he says, firstly, if you decide that you would rather hold on to this life, if you decide that you would rather hold on to the things of this world, if you decide that this earthly life is what you want, that you're going to grip it tightly, if you would seek to save this life, you will lose it and everything else. You cannot have both. Oh, you may well live a life worthy of this world. You may well live a life that makes all your friends jealous. You may well live this life for 80 or 100 years, but ultimately in the end, what you're going to find is nothing, that you have lost it all. Not only has it all burned up, but you're left with nothing in the end because you cannot have me and this old life of yours. I know that that's what churches preach, that if you just add a little bit of Jesus into the mix, that everything's going to be good, health and wealth and the applause of your friends. And Jesus says, no, to hold on to this old life is to lose everything that matters. But if you will lose it now, if you will deny yourself, if you will die daily, If you will lose this life, then you will save it. So stop chasing after the things of this world. Stop chasing after the applause of man. Stop hoarding and cherishing all the good things of this world, even your own health and your own life. If you will let go of these things for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will save your life. This is the promise that he's making here. Again, this isn't that we are earning Jesus Christ. It isn't that we're earning eternal life. It's that this is an evidence of how much we see and know and cherish him. You see, I am willing to die for the things that I cherish. These girls sitting on that that row right there, I will die without a second thought for their sake because I love them and I cherish them. Jesus Christ says, if you have seen me, you will cherish me. And if you cherish me, you will gladly die for me. You will gladly let go of the things of this world for me. You will gladly wake up each and every day and put to death the God of self for me. Church, I would add on to this, that this is what the world most desperately needs to see. You want to wonder why evangelism falls flat in this country? Because we live like the rest of the world while proclaiming Jesus Christ. They say, well, what have you given for him? Oh, you can't buy Jesus. Yeah, well, what are you suffering for him? Oh, well, we don't suffer here. But a willingness to let go of everything that the rest of the world is chasing, even your own life. That's a message people are going to hear again only God can save but you wonder why people think we're hypocrites you wonder why people laugh about us you wonder why they have no use for hearing our message this is in part why and so Jesus is saying if you will let go of your life for my sake for the sake of my gospel for the me that is revealed in my gospel and for the sake that others may hear and know this gospel if you will align yourself with my father's redemptive plan if you will do this you may lose everything this, this world has to offer but in the end your life will be saved Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What if Jesus means those words? He goes on to say, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. What if Jesus means those words? What if he means what he says? Neighbor, some of you are holding on so tight to this world. You are clinging so tight to this life. And Jesus is saying you can't do that. Number one, it's all going away in the end. Don't you understand? You're buying stock in the Titanic. This is all going to be burnt up in the end. But in addition to that, you can't hold on to this and have me. So go ahead and lose it all right now. Count it all as lost. Let loose of it completely. Renounce your ownership today. And you will have life today and in the world to come. You're all familiar with the words of Jim Elliot. Surely he was thinking about some of these texts when he said those words that you're so familiar with. A man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in exchange for that which he cannot lose. It's an exchange. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? The, world, the word that Jesus uses here for life in verse 35 is the same word he uses for soul in verse 36. It's the word psyche. There's another Greek word for life. It's bios. It's where we get the word biology from. It's talking about your physical life. But Jesus is talking more about more here than just our bodies. We know that when death comes, that these bodies, though they die, though they are buried into the ground, that our souls, that's that that will live on forever. And he's saying, if you try to hold on to this earthly life, listen, it's one of those natural instincts to try to hold on to this earthly life, try to preserve life at all costs. If you give in to that, if you give into that and you try to cling too tightly to this life, if you don't let go of this life right now, it is your soul that will be lost in the end. And then what will that have gained you? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He's arguing the lesser from the greater. He's saying, okay, I get it. The things of this world are attractive. So let's just say hypothetically. Let's just say hypothetically that you are literally able to gain the entire world, all of it. Everything that there is, everything in this room is yours, everything in the world is yours, everything that is in the world, let's just assume that all of this is yours, and then you die and find your soul lost, what have you gained? Beloved, it breaks my heart to see so many people proclaiming the name of Christ while losing their soul for a whole heck of a lot less in the world. gladly abandoning their soul for the sake of some tchotchkes and a few pats on the back. He's saying here the whole world is not worth this. you got to remember he's saying here you cannot love the world and love me. You cannot follow after me and follow after yourself. You lose yourself today. You lose your life today, and you shall gain eternally eternal life, true life, a soul which is in my presence for all life. And guess what? I'm coming back for your body in the end. Guess what? I'm rebuilding a perfect earth in the end. That's what's so upside down about this thing. We're holding on to the stuff that's burning up, and he's promising us so much more, and he's saying, let loose of that now. Because in the end, when you see me, it'll be too late. So I ask you, what does it profit a man if he receives that promotion at work? What does it profit a man if he saves up millions for retirement? What does it profit a man if he's loved by his neighbors? What does it profit a man if he lives a long and healthy life? What does it profit a man if his son is the best ball player in all the state? What does it profit a man if his daughter gets into the very best school? What does it profit a man if he accomplishes everything that this world says that you're meant to chase after, and then in the end you have missed it all and you have lost your soul? What have you gained? Nobody in their right mind signs up for that. And yet, everybody around us signs up for that. For what can a man give in return for his soul? What exchange will you make as you chase the things of this world? Let's say that you accumulate them. God doesn't want them, they're all His. We're like stupid cats going and killing mice and then taking them to God and going, Aren't you proud? Don't you want some of this? How much of my soul can I buy back with this? He says, I don't want any of that. I've already paid the price for your soul. My son, Jesus Christ. But because you rejected that, or because you thought you could have that with all the other stuff of this world, now you've lost both. Because you've rejected me and you've rejected my gospel. And so what's your bargain now? What exchange are you going to offer now? You've seen men. You see it in movies all the time. Men pleading for their life. Men pleading for their soul. He says, what are you going to offer me? You've got to understand that men in our natural state, we are the worst traitors of all time. That's T-R-A-D-E-R-S. We make the worst exchanges of all time. Go read back to the second half of Romans 1. We talk about it often over these last two years. But what we find there is that man exchanges the glory of God for the image of animals, the truth of God for a lie, the worship of God for idolatry, God-given relationships for perversity, blessing for curse, life for death, Heaven for hell. We lose every single exchange we make in our natural self. We're the worst. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, I've undone all the things that you gave, and gave away. All the things that you gladly gave I will give it all to you in me. But you can't go around me. And you can't hold on to that other stuff either you ever go to these stupid pizza places with your kids where you spend 80 bucks to win a balloon? That's who we are. He's saying, I own it all. He says, this is the only way that you can follow me. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is one last exchange. While not all men are trapped up by the love of wealth. I know plenty of men that are content with whatever it is that God sees fit to give them financially the clothes they have, the house they drive, they, ha- they don't drive house, the house they live in, the cars they drive. Plenty of men that are happy with that. But man, almost all men long for the ap- approval of others. Nobody likes to find out that everybody around you hates you. Almost all men give in to this. No man likes to stand and be shamed by those that are around him, rejected. No man wants to speak the truth of Christ, knowing that's going to put him at odds with the rest of the world, maybe even people within his own church. No man stands up for that. No man signs up for that. But Jesus is saying, you can't hold on to your reputation either. You can't hold on to your life. You can't hold on to your goodies. You can't even hold on to your good name. He talks here about this adulterous and sinful generation. This is a phrase that God would often use in the Old Testament to talk about these people, that despite all the blessings that God has given them, they're adulterous, they're unfaithful, they refuse to honor him. It's very much like the world we find ourselves in now, this world that plays, willing to pay lip service to who God is, but their life looks nothing like what he's unveiled in his word. And so he's saying, you cannot live for the applause and the approval of this world and expect to see my smiling face in the end. He's saying here that you can be hated by the world, the world which hated him, of course. You can be hated by this world, and in the end, you will find me and my Father and my holy angels greeting you in that last day. You can be loved by the world and rejected by me, or you can be rejected by the world and you can be loved by me. You cannot have both. This world hates me, and it will hate you as well. I think I'm going to skip over verse 9-1. We will address that next week. That's a tough one anyway. I don't want to wrap this up. As we we look to what Jesus is saying here, and oh, I pray that he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. Because I've sat and I've listened to this sermon, and it's meant nothing to me at times. It's only by the working of the Holy Spirit that it's going to penetrate your heart, but I pray that he is talking to you now. I pray that you would not continue to sit in this church for one more second while pointing backwards to some prayer that you said way back when and assuming that means that you're on the path that leads to heaven. I pray that you would stop looking forward, making some grand promise that in the last days you're willing to die a martyr's death for Jesus, and surely that proves that you're his. I pray that you'll quit looking around. I pray that you'll quit looking around and thinking that you can have all the things of this world, all the comforts of this world, all the security of this world, and Jesus Christ too. I pray that you would believe the words of Paul in Acts 14 where he says that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven, that we are promised a life of suffering, and rejection, tribulations, rejection and death, while the enemy tries to convince you that you can have both. The enemy doesn't have to convince you to hate God. The enemy doesn't have to convince you to not want heaven. He has to convince you that you want all this other stuff too. He has to convince you that you have big enough arms, big enough hands, that you can hold on to all that stuff and have Jesus Christ too. So I pray that you would see his glorious face. I pray that you would see Jesus Christ and all that is found in him. But that you would see him and you would want him more than all of these other things. So that you would be glad to renounce it all. You would find it all as dung. All the things that this world has called you to chase after. All the things that you see your friends enjoying. That you would renounce it all. That you would count it all as lost. That you would gladly give it away now, today, tomorrow, the day after that. Daily waking up. And as your old self cries out. As your old flesh cries out. As the little God of self continues to demand. That's not the way that's foolishness, that's folly, that you would put that self to death day after day after day. Say, I do not know you, do not know this man, and I want nothing to do with him, that you would turn to Jesus Christ, that you would truly delight in him, gladly letting go of everything this world has to offer for him, for his sake, for the sake of his gospel, not that you can buy him, not that you can earn him, Not that you can qualify yourself for heaven, but as an evidence to yourself, as an assurance to yourself that you are in fact his. That you do in fact delight in him. That you do in fact cherish him more than this life, more than your reputation, more than the things of this world. Do this and you will live. Do not and you will die. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father I thank you that thank you that not only has your son Jesus Christ placed this call on our lives but that he has revealed time after time why it's more than worth it we thank you that we can trust in your promises that there is nothing that we will let loose of in this lifetime that we will ever miss in eternity So, Father, I pray that you would drive us to that point, that we would daily, hourly, by the minute, die to self, knowing that it is only then that we may live in Christ Jesus and there find eternal life. Father, as we seek to glorify you now, we pray that you would fill our mouths with your words, that you would be pleased with that which we offer. First, in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.